My name is Arundhati Roy. I should just say WC, WCBN FM, right? Okay. This is uh, WCBN FM and Arbor, and uh, the revolution will not be funded. Good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Today on Living Writers, we return to the archives, February 2020, for a conversation with poet Ilya Kaminsky. In this conversation, we talk about his book, Deaf Republic. Ilya Kaminsky is the author of Deaf Republic, Dancing in Odessa, an echo anthology of international poetry. We talk about language and silence and the imagined town of Asenka with its puppet theater. How part of the work of Deaf Republic is this revelation of self-accusation of the writer and of the reader who is implicated, the guilt of seeing what is happening and not doing enough about it. Thanks for joining us today as we head to the archives February 2020 for a conversation with Ilya Kaminsky about his book of poems, Deaf Republic, a poet that we are really lucky to have in the world. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio with me Ilya Kaminsky. Ilya, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today. Oh, well, it's, it's lovely to see you and to have this chance to talk about, you. about your amazing book, Deaf Republic. Before we start, I'll read your bio in the book, and we'll go from there. Yeah. Ilya Kaminsky was born in the former Soviet Union and is now an American citizen. He's the author of Dancing in Odessa and co-editor of the Echo Anthology of International Poetry. He was a 2014 finalist for the Neustadt International Prize for Literature. His other honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Lannan Literary Fellowship, and a Whiting Award. His work has been translated into more than 20 languages. So Deaf Republic, this book, it was a long time in the making. How did this story come to you for the town of Vesenka? When did these poems start, start forming? That's a great question. And the answer might be a little longer. Uh, than one might then, simply because I always write poems, that's what poets do. Uh, but this is also a story in verse. And um, the difficulty of uh, writing the story for me was, well, it begins on a moment when a pregnant woman and her husband um, see a soldier at a public gathering shoot and kill a young deaf boy. And in response to this murder, um, the town decides to protest the authorities by refusing to hear the police, the soldiers, the government. Um, I was born in former USSR uh, in a city that's now in Ukraine. And as you probably know, Ukraine 
part of Ukraine is occupied by Russia. Um, so, of course, that historical situation is a part of my life and important to my life. And also, of course, I have been living in the United States for a very long time, since 1993, and for the last 12 years uh, in California, Southern California. How, how old were you, Ilya, when you... I, I was you 16 when I came to America. 16? Yeah. Okay. Um, but just to follow up, in the last 12 years, I lived about nine miles from a border in the United States. So a lot of things that you see in the news now have been happening on the border for quite some time. And the big question in the book and the story of the book for me was, how do I respond to both of these experiences, to both of these parts of me? Perhaps this is anyway a future story. How do you reconcile the experience where you come from and the experience where you are now. And the book is trying to find images and um, narrative that speaks to both of those experiences. And that's partly why it's a fable, um, so that it could speak to more than one uh, situation and still be true. And that's what I was after when I was writing, and that's why it took such a long time, because I wanted it to be true for the part of me that is still very much in conversation in, with Ukraine, and also a part of me that lived nine miles from a border in the United States. I hope that helps to answer your question. It does. And I, and I would say, Deaf Republic also, it, you don't need to to live nine miles from a border to to really experience also the the world that you've created in Vesenka and to see parallels to the our the the country as a whole the the US as a whole maybe unfortunately oh unfortunately yeah yeah exactly um and maybe i wonder is that why the structure, how you were building the book, Ilya, with the structure of the initial, the lead poem before we enter the town of Vesenka, before we're at the puppet show and have the gunshot. The first poem, we lived happily during the war. And then we turn the page with the title, Deaf Republic, and then we enter into the fable, which is told in two parts. And then at the very end of the book, we seem to have another poem that bookends and frames it in a time of peace. Can you talk about how, why you decided to structure the, the book with these two poems, the beginning and at the end? Well, we live it happily during the war. It's a very, very old poem. Um, it's a poem which in, right at the beginning of the Second Iraq War. I was visiting an American poet, Eleanor Wilner, and it was just at the time Bush was making his pronouncements on the TV, and um, she was furious, she was angry, and she's a very passionate, wonderful poet. And that fury of hers was very contagious. Mm. At that time, it's quite a long time ago, I was still more or less a recent immigrant, so to speak, and I never even thought I could necessarily write about the United States. I was um, just finished with my first book, Dancing in Odessa, um, which is very much a refugee's a book about the past that she wants to be in conversation with. And the book has poems about my family in that part of the world in Eastern Europe. It has um, a conversation with great East European poets, such as Osip Mandelstam, Marina Svitaeva, and so forth. Um, and in some ways, that book, I wasn't even trying to write it in English as a second language as much as a language of images, because before I came to America, I didn't really have hearing aids. So visual, just watching people speak within their lips was very much a part of my communication. So lip reading, and did you also yeah. sign, Ilya, too? Um, um, sign language is not my first language. Um, lip reading is very much a part of how I communicate. Because um, you lost your hearing at four? Was yeah, it correct. about four years old? Correct. So, okay. And um, so the main poetic device in dancing in the United States images, I really kind of wanted, without 
really have an intelligence. You have ambition more as a personal need. I wanted was obsessed with an idea of writing a book pretty much only in the language of images. I wanted to see how can I tell a story or make a song completely out of images. And so that was a project of Dancing in Odessa, and it was published in 2004, um, which was 11 years after we came to so United 2004, States. 2004, was it Tupelo Press? Correct, I think? Tu- okay. Tupelo Press. Um, and um, at that point, I had to ask myself, well, who am I now? I have lived in this country for 11 years. Um Am I still this Russian boy, a Jewish Russian boy from Ukraine, or am I becoming an American? And uh, I wasn't sure what the answer was. I'm not sure if any immigrant ever knows. Um, And so watching Eleanor with her passion, with her fury to this bombing of Iraq that was happening in front of us on TVs. Yes. And our clown of a president back then, we have another clown, a more criminal perhaps clown now, um, announced it with such pomp um, that I just couldn't help but find her passion contagious. And I wrote that poem, uh, I believe it happened during the war, about uh, all kinds of dualities of the, our, our situation, our predicament. And um, that was one of the earlier poems in the book. Um, you- the final poem, uh, In a Time of Peace, was almost the, one of the final poems that were chronologically written in the book. And that was also in response to seeing two other poets in conversation. Carolyn Forcher. Uh, Carolyn Forcher was interviewing Patricia Smith. And um, it was a very moving experience. Trump was already our president at that time. and uh, But Patricia was speaking about daily reality, what it means to drive through certain states in America. Right. And um, the poem just, again, began as kind of notes uh, that I was taking impressions, not necessarily what they were saying, but just how one feels uh, in this kind of situation. And the poem is, at that time, bulk of the book was written, so this final poem was in conversation with it Which seems, well. I think there are, because with this poem, you can see clear threads, connections into the poems from the two parts. Mm-hmm. For example, the body of a boy lies on the pavement exactly like the body of a boy, and then that M dash. And that is very much an American image. This is something that's um, part of American life today. Um, But you could also say that something like this happens in occupied part of Ukraine right now, in Donbass. And so um, when images like those feel true to more than one experience. Mm-hmm. I felt like, okay, I can say it as a refugee and uh, feel it true for both a part of me that lives in this country, but also part of me that came from elsewhere. And it's a very unfortunate thing that they feel true. Uh, this is not why people come here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is the reality that we find ourselves in. And Ilya, you said that the the other poems, the two sections, had, had already been, uh, yeah, uh, most of them had for been For the most part, the book already took shape by the time I wrote the last poem. When did you realize that you wanted to have, so, Vasenka, but it not be a real place, but one that you had imagined? Mm-hmm. Why, was th- why was that? Well, let's... Let's let's start with this. We might have to take a break, but okay. yeah, why was why was it important to make this an imaginary? Well, I grew up on a fabulist uh, tradition. Eastern European literary tradition is very much a fabulist tradition. You think of writers such as Shalom Aleichem or Isaac Babel or Isaac Bassevich Zinder, um, and it is you know you 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 think of Kafka. It's very much a Gogol. It's very much a fabulist um, kind of thing where um, a story can speak to more than one situation and still be true. And that seems to explain a lot of Mama Galia, too, because she seems like a, a fabulist character. 
Sure, but you can also say that um, if you eat somebody like Grace Pelley, yeah. who is a great American short story writer and who was, in fact, a realist writer, but uh, this kind of passion of human character in a time of um, disaster, uh, the passion that inspires others, and that's what Grace Pelley herself did. She inspired so many people. Um, can be realist, but it is just the way my mind works is a is a fabulous tradition is something that's close to me let's let's take a short break and when we come back let's talk more about how your mind works okay. you. today on living writers Ilya Kaminsky is here deaf republic out with gray wolf press i'm t hetzel we'll be back <laughs> Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. Today on the program, Ilya Kaminsky is here. We're talking about his book of poems out in 2019, Deaf Republic. Ilya, right before we went to the break, we were talking about how your mind works <laughs> in a fabulous way. Can you can you say a little bit more about that? How do you see, like, is there a notion of play involved as well as like a serious play? And the imagination. Um, well, the book begins with uh, two puppeteers, a puppet play. And uh, if you think about the history of puppetry in the world, uh, puppetry was always uh, one of the more democratic arts. It was not an art that only belonged to the court. It was very much an art that belonged to the street. Yes. It was also one of the most political arts. Um, you could create a puppet play with finger puppets, and um, police could never stop you, Zita. Yeah, uh, a way to talk back to of power. Course, of course. And uh, it happened all over the world, not in just one part of the world. Um, so it's an international art. It's an art that you can understand without knowing the language. Uh, it's um, art in action, activist art. Um, also, it is art that seems to have survived the test of time. You had a puppetry being forbidden in the 17th century England, but also forbidden in uh, World War II Germany. Uh, great 
writer from Czechoslovakia, Karel Kapak, uh, was actually writing puppet plays during the occupation of Czechoslovakia because those were the plays that people could still perform without Nazis being able to stop them. And here in the United States, believe it or not, not long ago in Seattle, police actually arrested puppeteers for performing a puppet play in the street. Wait, can you, yeah, tell us. In the city of Seattle. Yeah, tell me about this. What I didn't know. Well, um, it just happened. Yeah. Bob. Uh, Puppeteers were performing a play, and police decided to stop it. So, were they maybe at the Pike Place Market or so, some public place? And, or I mean, we, well, we I can could look go it up. Yeah, nar- yeah. narrative, but the fact itself that it got stopped um, in very different periods of time, mm-hmm. and hopefully very different rooms, tells us something about the art itself. Um, then there is a question of um, a fairy tale. A fairy tale is not something that um, only little teeth got and something that's very, very sweet. Fairy tale can oh. be incredibly not sweet. Um, it is also... Violent, completely violent. Oh, and, absolutely. And terrifying. It's also, from the beginning of time, was a feminist genre. It's, uh, the fairy tales were usually told by women. Um, when we talk about the beginnings of literature period, um, our textbooks say, oh, you know, literature began when a blind guy in Greece began to tell us about war. Well, I'm sorry, that's not true. That's not how literature began. There were wailing sounds at the funerals. There were lullabies. There were whisperers. There were castings of spells. And all of that is very, very active activist literature. And um, it is interesting to see how it can coexist in our time, how it really never died. People still wail at funerals. Um, People still need wedding songs and love songs. Um, so I'm interested in that kind of setup, a little bit of a non-normative view of what a poem or a story can be. How can they perhaps have a handshake? How can they dance together for a while? What does a tango be between a poem and a story? And so that's why that was. It's a lyrical fable that we have here in Deaf Republic. Yeah. Ilya, would you mind reading some of the poems so we get a sense of them? Sure. Um, perhaps I should read some of the poems we talked about. So I will start with a poem you mentioned, really, but happily during the war. Then I will read one of the love poems and add another poem from the middle of the book. We live it happily during the war. We live it happily during the war. And when they bombed other people's houses, we protested, but not enough. We opposed them, but not enough. I was in my bed, around my bed, America was falling. Invisible house by invisible house by invisible house. I took a chair outside and watched the sun. In the sixth month of a disastrous rain, in a house of money, in the street of money, in a city of money, in a country of money, our great country of money. We, for divas, live happily during the war. And as I mentioned in the book, it's about um, a time of crisis. But of course, even in a time of crisis, people fall in love. So the next poem is called Before the War, We Made a Child. Before the War, We Made a Child. I kissed a woman whose freckles harassed the neighbors. She had a mole on her shoulder. Which she displayed like a model for bravery. Her trembling lips, man come to bed. Her hair would have fallen in the middle of the conversation, man come to bed. 
I walked in my barber shop of thoughts. Yes, I zivit her off to bed, on a chair of my hairy arms. But parted lips, man, bite my parted lips, lying under the cool sheets. Sonia, the things we did. And um, the poem to end on uh, is unfortunately not a happy ending. It's called The Townspeople Watch Them Take Alfonso. The townspeople watch them take Alfonso. Now, each of us is a witness stand. Vasenka watches us watch for soldiers. There are Alfonso Brabinsky on a sidewalk. We let them take him, all of us, cowards. But we don't say. We carry in our suitcases, our coat pockets, our nostrils. Across the street, they wash him with fire hoses. First he screams, then he stops so much sunlight. A t-shirt falls off a closet, lying an old man stops, picks it up, presses it to his face. Neighbors just all to watch him drown on a sidewalk like a vadimilak. Ta-da! In so much sunlight... Each of us is a witness stand. They take Alfonso, and no one stands up. Our silence stands up for us. Thank you. Thanks, Ilya. Thank you. So our silence stands up for us. This this idea so the like this idea of a of a whole town not not wanting refusing to hear refusing to acknowledge that they can hear is a way of protesting. Then this use of silence in a different way because mm-hmm. this is not a good silence. The word silence itself is an interesting thing to think about because um, so much of our metaphysics, our religion, our philosophy dances around, circles around it, obsessed with the concept of silence for religion, especially theology. Um, and yet if you talk to any deaf writer, and I, asked, I made a point of asking every single deaf boy I ever met, do you believe in silence? And the answer is always no, I don't. Now, that is 8% of population on the planet Earth, people who cannot hear. That's a large percent. Um, and so I wonder if perhaps silence is a creation of the hearing and invention of the hearing. Because if that don't believe in it, then what does it tell us about our theology, our metaphysics, our philosophy? Um, how much of it becomes a, a fantasy? Um, there is a great disability study scholar, Rosemary Garland Thompson, who in her book, Extraordinary Body, argues that a disabled body should move from the realm of the hospital room to the realm of political minority, from the realm of the hospital to the realm of a political minority. And um, that is especially relevant to our situation now. You look at the elections, and so many people speak about health care and how then all of these questions that we might think of a fable or a theory are in fact not. Every time you go to the hospital, you actually live inside that fable. Uh, at what point that stops being a fable and starts hurting? When you say living inside the fable, what do you mean, Ilya? I mean um, all of the things that we watch on TV... Uh, we have a certain distance from them, right? We have a certain comfort. And we can say, oh, that happens somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And what I want you to do with this book is 
to make the video first say, oh, that happened somewhere else. And, the, and then realize, oh, no, that's not happening somewhere else. I'm looking in the mirror. Yeah. Deaf Republic does that. Hopefully, I mean, that's the hope. For one reader. Thank you. Thank you. Um, today on Living Writers, Ilya Kaminsky is here. His book, Deaf Republic. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Gina behind the glass. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. Today on Living Writers, Ilya Kaminsky is here. His book, Deaf Republic. Thanks to Caroline Nitz at Grey Wolf for sending a couple of copies our way before Ilya arrived. So, Ilya, with the building of the book, kind of going back to that, we've got this framework with the, the two poems. And then we have a, a book, The Fable is in two parts. One it begins with, and we, we've got to hear two poems from, from the, the first part. Why? Why these two parts? How, how are they working? Why was it necessary to, to have it in parts? Maybe the easy answer is Alfonso, who narrates the beginning poems, is killed. So he disappears. But, but well, why else did you imagine it this way? There is a real life story behind any fable and in my situation um well let me just for those who have not read the book i should probably say that um it's a story of a pregnant woman and her husband in a time of crisis and um they they have a baby and and neither of them survives but the baby survives and um the townspeople save the baby they steal them from the baby from police, and uh, the leader of those who do that, Mama Gala, is the person you're referring to, and she is very charismatic, a little over the top um, character in the book. If you read the book, that will be the character you're more likely to fall in love with, and that's that's kind of what I was going for. But um, as in many of um, situations of crisis, sometimes a person who becomes the center of protest, the leader of protest, is the one who suffers from protest as well, as um, is known, revolution tends to eat its own children. And so Mama Galia suffers that fate as well. Um, Now, as I said, every fable has a background that may, may be true. And the story of this baby is really the story of my father. Um, my grandfather was uh, killed in 1937 in, during the Stalin's regime, and my grandmother was sent to Siberia. Uh, but the baby was stolen. My father was that baby. And um, this is the story, the second story is that of a woman who saved him, and she saved him twice. The first time in a, by being willing to adopt him uh, in 1937, before World War II started. And the second time in the occupied city of Odessa, which was occupied by Romanians and Nazis, uh, because we're Jewish. And um, she kept him during the occupation from 1941 
294 she lost her uh, apartment because of that and she could have lost her life um, and uh, the many little little stories inside that story that you don't necessarily make into the book um, because the book doesn't really try to write a memoir of what might have happened. I wasn't around, so I couldn't really make that memoir. But I tried to capture the exuberance of the people and the tenderness of the people and the um, horror of what happened to them. I hope that answers your question. The origin, so that that is interesting. But it was also important to distance it from, from the personal, mm-hmm. because of how your mind works in the making of it, or even to well, tell also, the story. I don't live in, in Russia in 1937. Mm-hmm. I live in the United States mm-hmm. in uh, 2020, and the uh, United States in 2020 has its own real problems. And um, those years at my time, and the book really tries to see what are the similarities and differences. And it's uh, in some ways, when I first began writing in English, um, I, I didn't really believe in the concept of irony at all, simply because in the 1990s, um, in the Clinton era, say, um, Irony in America was very different from irony in Eastern Europe. If you were, say, a writer in Ukraine or Poland and you were not ironic, you would go to prison. You had to be ironic. Um, now, if you are writing in Brooklyn and, uh, in 1993 when I came here and you are ironic, well, good for you. Who cares? Right? So the concept of irony was very different. Now we are seeing again the time when a concept of irony uh, is coming back. Not necessarily even because a writer would go to prison. Thank God we don't have that. Knocking the wood out on my forehead. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but we are seeing a constant assault of information. Well, it is not that things that happen are not terrible, but they happen in such a non-stop way all the time that people become numb. And as a writer, you begin to think, well, what literary devices can wake one up? And um, what um, literary effects, how, what images, what sounds, what tonalities. And so I, I can see irony coming back, unfortunately perhaps, uh, but it is coming back um, in a productive way because it, it helps us to see how things are because earth, earnestness, uh, as useful as it is, as necessary as it is to protest, also flattens the response. And when the video is numb from so much happening all the time, all the time, the video stops paying attention. The, what literature, what poetry offers in this time and constant stop assault by news, by TV, by politicians who are actors, who are clowns, and who use reality TV in politics right now. Um, the poetry and literature offers nuance. And so a poem could perhaps be both ironic and earnest in a nuanced way. Mm-hmm. That makes the reader feel like, oh, my brain is worried and I'm not just sitting on Twitter or Facebook. Right, right. Because you're creating uh, and, an experience, yes. really, for the reader when they enter Deaf Republic. Alternative to the flatness of nonstop beating the, ha- the hammer on the head. Right. And, and by inviting the reader into that world... But having and having beautiful language within it and the the built structure of the lines and then having parts that then the reader does recognize as well recognizable to their own lived experience. But in this other this other story or fable, Mm -hmm. it's a different way in and you are you're more alive to the experience of it as a reader. Yeah, the reader should be implicated in the story. How so? How so? 
Um, otherwise, it is, again, the kind of experience that happens somewhere else. Huh? Mm-hmm. And we as Americans are so used to thinking of ourselves as God on the Mount Olympus, but that <laughs> happens somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. They happen in here, and they happen somewhere else because of us. Mm-hmm. Um so implicating the reader who might first come to the book, then that happens somewhere else, and making them feel, oh, it's happening here now. And I'm, I... I'm a participant. And um, that should happen, in, to my mind, in a nuanced way, in a way that really creates a conversation in a reader's mind, that creates a dwelling in a reader's mind. So the reader is truly... Uh, changed by the experience of reading a book. Right, because you want the challenge there and that created experience for the reader, but you also can't have the reader disconnect from it somehow. Sure, and I also don't want to just talk about me and my book. I, I want to talk about, well, when I don't have an answer and you have, you have so many crises, one after another after another, uh, how do I respond? And when I have a problem or a question that I don't have an answer to, what do I do? I go to my bookshelf and ask myself which among the writers I love can help me answer it. Um, say somebody like Emily Dickinson, you read her and she is a writer in the middle of a theological crisis. She is a great poet of faith and a great doctor of faith, and she is able to to do that both at the same time, often in the same line. And um, the critics say, oh, but her music is certainly one tune, but that is not true at all. What she does is she is a great orchestrator of silence inside that music. She gives you a rhyme and you expect a rhyme, you expect a rhyme, and then she denies it when she doesn't rhyme. And that's when you stop and you usually have a kind of a revelation. And that's how the poem is really living inside you, how the poem is implicating you. And uh, you can go on and talk about many other poets, the poet that was a much influenced, um, and Deaf Republic for me was Robert Hayden. Uh, in his oh. great um, long eight pages, uh, actually a little uh, shorter, a uh, poem called Middle Passage, yes. uh, where he is um, able to construct a poem from many different registers of language. Um, it's obviously a poem about a slave ship, a journey of a slave ship, um, but he constructs it from different kind of language. So there's a language of uh, slave holders, diaries, there are slave songs. There is Shakespearean language, 17th century language from the place. Um, the, the, the lawyer's language in the courtroom. So the poet is bringing all different registers of speech. And the reader, when the reader is reading it, their mind becomes like a course, and they're participating in that course. They're feeling with their ears. T.S. Eliot says that poem should be communicated before it's understood. It is done through music, through image, through central elements of the poem. And that's why I love poets like Cadian or Dickinson. Um, they really are able to use different registers of language to deliver their meaning. Their music, their imagery, is um, allowing the poem to to tell me something, not just the information in the story of the poem. Right, it's feeling it. Yeah, the poem is not just, but not just the feeling, the feeling that the music of the poem creates Mm -hmm. before you even understand the full argument of the poem. You're already implicated by its music. Um, You could say that poem is not about an event. It is an event. It creates the experience. It's not, not just about the experience. And moreover, it doesn't just create it. It is, is it? an experience. And it uh, does it through your senses. It's, it's written in the language of the senses. Um, a great poet of Spanish language, Lorca, said, Poet is a professor of five senses. 
He didn't say poet as a professor of creative writing at the university. <laughs> he said poet as a professor of five senses. So what does it mean for somebody to be able to tell you a story in images or in music to just speak through your senses, to wake up your senses. Um, once a great Polish poet, Zbigniew Herbert, had an interview, and uh, the interviewer didn't know much about poetry, so he asked it, well, what is the purpose of poetry? A long silence, and then Herbert <laughs> says, to wake up. And we wake up through our senses. This is the difference between a poet and the state, a poet and the empire. Um, the project of the empire is to dull our senses, to make them dull, yes. so that we can go shopping. Right. And the project of the poet is to wake up our senses. Well, Deaf Republic definitely, for one reader, me, woke up my senses because I wanted to start writing a poem right away. Like I was, I was ready again. So thanks. Thank, thank you for saying that. I want to see that poem. <laughs> Very kind, Ilya. Today on Living Writers, Ilya Kaminsky is here. Deaf Republic, the book on the table, out with Grey Wolf Press. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Good afternoon. I'm glad you're here with us today on Living Writers, Ilya Kaminsky and his book, Deaf Republic. Ilya, I'd love if we could if we could hear a couple more poems. Before we do that, I wanted to ask you about one of the the structures or threads that I saw through Deaf Republic, where it's very short poems. Could I actually grab the, the book for sharing? sharing a book here today. So there's questions throughout. And, it, and I think it, it's, could you talk about, here's one, it's midway through, I think it's the second of the questions. It says, question, what is a child? A quiet between two bombardments. Could you talk about the use, like what the work of those poems within the structure? Yeah, I'm glad you um asked this question because there is a little story about how this um, couplet poems were written. Um, I always knew that I wanted to have one question answer poem in the book, uh, but I couldn't quite decide which one. The three of them, uh, what's a child, what's a woman, and what's a man. And um, the answer is always the same, a silence between two bombardments. Um, and the book was almost done um, when, as you mentioned, it's published by Grey Wolf Press. So I 
after the editor, Jeff Schatz, who's an amazing editor at Grey Wolf, uh, what do you think? I have these three potential places where I could put one of this. And I'm not quite sure which one. And he looked and he said, put all three. And that was an absolutely brilliant response because what it did, it gave a kind of momentum, a kind of echo, so different moments and, frankly, different deaths in the book um, responded to the same kind of um, human unknown. Here we are between one bombardment of being born and another bombardment of not being alive, or here we are between two parents, or here we are in our country. Um, so there can be very different answers involving exactly the same words. And that that is kind of um, a brilliance of Jeff Trotz to see that and to push it towards happening. Yes. And the, and amazing that you had all three already that had um, you had written organically. They had already, it wasn't like an idea that you thought, oh, this could be a way of working, but they already existed. And there was a place for each of them to do work. And silence is key within this. Like it feels almost, it's strange to me because it feels like those three couplet poems are showing an argument, a reason for even the existence of silence, which I know we started talking about at the beginning, you know, where well, there, because I know it's also it, a construct, like that's so interesting not to. Um, There's so many ways to talk about what silence is. Uh, the writer, you want to say, oh, we speak against silence. Of course we do. But um, that's the hope. But um, then you can ask a question, where do the poems come from? And that kind of the cloud of unknown, the silence of unknown, the mystery, right? And um, if you talk too much about it, the mystery becomes something silly, something new agey. Mm. Um, so how do you put it in a precise language of the senses without losing that, that silence in the language? Because frankly, any music without silence orchestrating it is mere noise. It's just hum of noise. It is silence that makes music stop and pick up and speed up and so forth. Um, so one could say we speak against silence, but it is silence that moves us to speak. And this duality, this tension, is what I'm interested in. Um, yeah. And also, so there's these these three couplet poems, there's also the use of images within Deaf Republic, not only in the written word, but also in drawings of, mm -hmm. of signs that you have in a note at the end of the book, mm -hmm. that it's, these are signs that are particular to Vasenka, the, the, this imagined town. And they go throughout the book, and then at the very end, they're united on a page that feels very part of the experience that you're within, because in a way you're taught to know what these signs mean by then. And there's a different way of being in the language at that moment, right before the last poem. You know, um, I began to lose hearing when I was four, so I already had language, spoken language. Um, but my father especially was really trying to teach me sign language. Um, living in Soviet Union, especially at the time of it break, breaking up, there was a lot of stigma, especially in Soviet schools, against sign language. So I didn't really pick up on that. But a few years ago, not long before she died, my mother, um, and she was very ill for a long time, she asked me, why didn't you... Um, Dude, your father really wanted you to. And my wife, um, who had some Russian, happened to be in the room, and she said, actually, when he sleeps, he signs. And that was kind of a revelation for me. So I thought, oh, I really need to have that part of experience in the book. 
and what is sign language for me in the book. And the hope was that um, the reader would learn the signs. There are signs that, um, for certain things that I describe it in the book, there are also images of sign language. Um, at the bottom of the page. And some of them are repeated more than once. So as the reader goes through the book, they kind of become familiar with them. And at the end of the book, the images are given, but there are no subtitles anymore. So that the hope was that the reader, just like the people of the town who teach themselves sign language so that they have the language that the police cannot understand, the reader will also have that language. The reader will also become a part of that town by knowing the signs that they would not know when they first opened the book. That was the hope to have that kind of community between the town and the reader. But community of the town is not necessarily... Uh, positive community. Not for Mama Galia. No, not book. at all. No. And that is um, something for others we just to ask ourselves, who are we? Mm-hmm. And what it is that we are silent about that is happening right now. Um, and for me as a writer, it is a question because the book is spoken from we, um, but I, all the positive um, characters in the book are an I, a personal pronoun, and good things don't happen to them, and it is only we that survives, and that we isn't exactly um, a positive player, and I, as a writer, I'm speaking from perspective of a beast, so that's very much a book of self-accusation and of guilt, of seeing what is happening and not doing enough about it. Implicated. Yeah. And the reader is implicated along with the, the, the writer, the maker. Course. Yeah. Ilya, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you. The, the time has flown. Today on Living Writers, Ilya Kaminsky, his book, Deaf Republic, out with Grey Wolf Press. Thanks to Gina for engineering. Thanks again to Caroline Nitz for sending the books. Thanks to George, George Cooper, for the use of the, the show's theme song at the top of the hour. Ilya, please come again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time.
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ryan Dolson. I am joined here by Matthew Levy, and this is your daily sports report for Wednesday, March 9th, 2022. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. There's a lot of news going around uh, across all the different sports. You got a lot of big trades happening in, in football college basketball you got march madness happening and uh in baseball news they're still locked out uh nothing really new on that front tragically apart from games being canceled hopefully they can work that out soon but uh really not looking promising so far first um i thought first we could talk about some big uh nfl moves i don't know if there's one that you're specifically like have the most to talk about I, i i i I, I want to save my clowning of on, of Aaron Rodgers for maybe a few minutes into the broadcast. <laughs> Which one would you rather talk about first? Let's talk about the one today. I, Carson Wentz. Yeah. Any any initial thoughts? Um, Carson Wentz, the uh, QB for the Indianapolis Colts, uh, in case you didn't hear, is being traded over to the Washington Commanders. I, I always have to think for a second. It's not football <laughs> team anymore. It's the Washington Commanders. Um, I, I mean, I think it's a probably a good call for the Colts, but it's also just like the now this year you're going to have your sixth different starting QB in the last six seasons, and it just shows it's like they got nothing for Carson. You know, they traded a first round pick for him a a, a year ago, and now they're getting rid of him for a third round pick. I think two, two third round picks. So it really just shows that. You, you you choked and didn't make the playoffs because you couldn't beat Jacksonville, <laughs> and uh, 